Good morning. I need to tell you about a man who once was a man and he had a pet carrot. And he was walking his pet carrot. He loved this pet carrot. He would take it on walks and he would brush the, the foliage on the top of the carrot. As he was walking one day, tragically, a car swerved and, and struck his carrot. He rushed him to the emergency room, went into intensive care and went into surgery and the man paced her out in the, in the waiting room and finally the doctor came out. He said, tell me what's happening, doctor. Is my carrot alive? Is he okay? And the doctor sighed, rubbed his eyes and took off his mask and said, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news is your pet carrot is still alive and the man breathed a sigh of relief. He said, what's the bad news then? The doctor looked him in the eye and said, well, I'm sorry, but your carrot will be a vegetable for the rest of his life. <laughs> Inevitably, when there's good news, there is bad news that follows. Take, for instance, the recent instance of the, the, the man that you may have heard of. He was cooking in the kitchen. He had his knife, and he was chopping things up, and he got a little crazy with the chopping, and he dropped the knife and severed his toe. And he rushed him to the doctor, and he went into surgery, and when he woke up, the doctor came in, and he said, Doctor, what's happening? And the doctor said, I have good news, and I have bad news. The man said, what's the bad news, Doc? Hit me with it. He said, well, you see, your toe was so damaged, we couldn't reattach it. We had to use whatever we had around. So we used a piece of candy. And the guy said, candy? So what's the good news? And the doctor said, you now have a tic-tac-toe. <laughs> I'm sorry for trying to bring a little happiness into your lives. To be fair, I asked Abigail about the jokes in between services, and she said those were the worst jokes that I've told <laughs> since I started as a pastor. So I said, so good that they were so bad they were good? And she said, no. <laughs> well, much like my terrible jokes, Romans starts off with good news. Literally, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the best news of all. But the next question is, what is the bad news? What is the gospel saving us from? After all, you don't randomly swim up to somebody in a swimming pool, grab them, swim to the side, throw them on a towel and say, you're saved. They'll look at you like you're crazy. What am I saved from? I was just swimming and you blundered up. But what if in that pool someone released a great white shark and the person you pulled out didn't know until you pulled them out? And when they looked back, they could see that you had indeed Save them. This is what we will be looking at today. People in danger of being swallowed up, not by some great white shark, but something far more terrifying. And that would be the wrath of God. It sounds ominous, right? The wrath of God. But what does that look like? What, what, what is the wrath of God? Well, let's take a look. Uh, again, today, as we read, I'm going to back up a few verses to give us a little context. So our passage today is actually verses 18 through 32, but I'm going to back up to 16 so we can get a little context into what it is we're looking at. So if you would please turn there with me, Romans 1, uh, starting in verse 16. This is Paul speaking, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what was, has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. May God add his blessing of understanding to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we praise the psalmist in 119, pray that you would teach us your ways, that you would teach us your laws, so that we can be more like you every day. Lord, we pray as we study this passage, that the focus uh, on, on the society that is, that is crumbling would not be one from a casual observer, or the, someone outside of this, or because we know that we were all sinners saved by grace. Let us not feel overly righteous or uh, better than the folks that we will be talking about today. But Lord, may we understand that we are drowning men shouting to other drowning men on how to be saved. But we love you and we will give you all the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My wife is one of the best shoppers in the world. She finds the most insane deals and has the best coupons for just about anywhere we go. We walk in, and the first thing she says, I think I have a coupon for this. She starts digging around on her phone. And when I first met Allison, I was ignorant of her superpowers. I would just be like, come on, just pay for it. We have to dig the coupon out. Let's just buy this and get out of here. And in my ignorance, or possibly my pride, I would reject her offering of savings. And then... I would pay for it, literally. In a much larger scale, this is what we are going to see in our passage today. The world has been given the coupon of coupons, better than Willy Wonka's golden ticket, more valuable than money itself, 
the ultimate get-out-of-jail-free card. But some have rejected it. They have suppressed the truth of their need for the gospel, and there is a price. That price is our topic today as we examine what happens to a society or a culture that rejects the, the, the truth of the gospel that we read about in verse 17, that turns their back on it and says, I will do it my way. and pays the due penalty for that rejection. Now do you see why I started with a few jokes? In all of this, there is a pattern. When a, when a society enters its final stages of depravity, uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32 gives us a very clear picture with which to gauge the depravity of that nation. First, there is revelation. Second, that revelation is rejected. Third, the darkness that accompanies that rejection is rationalized. And finally, the rejection is celebrated. So that is the cycle we will study today. Revelation, rejection, rationalization, celebration. So let's start with Revelation. Let's back up to verse 16 to get the full effect here. Remember, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. He remembered that he could get up in front of a group and string together fancy words and make them chuckle or sway them in a certain way, but without the power of God, it was just wind. And the power of God would come in, and that power was the power of salvation. He says in verse 17, for it is the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. We remember that righteousness is not God up in heaven saying, look at me at how righteous I am. You will never attain this. That righteousness is the righteousness that he gives to the believer, that he wraps us in Jesus' righteousness so that when God looks down, And he sees Lance. He doesn't see Lance the sinner. He sees Lance the child of God. Because I am wrapped in Christ's righteousness. We get to 18 and that first word, four. Four tells us to go back and look at at the passages before. So four, the righteous man shall live by faith. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Paul joyously tells the Romans in in, uh, verses 16 and 17 about the righteousness that God places upon all who would have faith in Jesus. And then he tells us why that righteousness is so vitally important to us. For the same reason a jeweler will take out a, a fine diamond and they won't lay it on a white tablecloth. They'll get out a black velvet background and they'll put that diamond and it will glisten all the more and shine brightly. Paul seeks to show us the true treasure that God has given us by placing it upon the dark cloth of God's wrath. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it has the power to save, because through it the faith of a believer clothes him in Christ's righteousness, and if you aren't clothed in that righteousness, this is what you can expect. God's wrath. And we're all somewhat familiar with the wrath of God in the end times, right? The, the tribulation and, and hell. We understand that um, if we uh, don't accept Christ as our Savior and we die in our sin, that we will be punished eternally in hell, that is, enduring God's wrath eternally. And yet Paul is telling us here that at the same time God's righteousness is covering those who have faith in Christ, God's wrath is upon those who don't accept 
the free gift of grace now, today, tomorrow, and the next day. Remember when I told you earlier in the chapter that the gospel had the power not only to save us in the future, but now, so, so that we could live uh, Christ-like lives in the here and now. Likewise, rejecting the gospel has the power to damage us in the here and now. But what is this wrath that Paul is talking about? The Greek word here for wrath is orge. It refers to a, a settled and determined indignation. Not a momentary burst of anger or emotion. Your kid knocks over a cup of Kool-Aid on the carpet. That's, ah, why'd you spill the Kool-Aid? That's not wrath. Wrath is settled and determined. This is wrong, and I am angry. God's attributes are perfectly balanced. If he had no righteous anger or wrath, he would not be God, just as if he didn't have perfect love. Our society believes that love is accepting of everything. I remember hearing about a TV show where a, a high school girl was in a, a sexual relationship with her teacher. And when the mother confronted her about it, the daughter said that if her mom truly loved her, she would let her be who she was and do what she wants. I hope we can all agree that if that mother truly did love her daughter, the answer would be a resounding no and a call to the police. You see, love isn't just saying yes to everything. If we truly love someone, we won't say yes to them jumping off a cliff. We won't say yes to them walking out into traffic. And God's love is the same. He loves us perfectly and is perfectly angered at things that are unrighteous. We see this in Psalm 45, starting in verse 7. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. God's wrath is spoken about in the Old Testament in Psalm 2, where the psalmist is warning the kings of the earth who have plotted against God. In verse 5, the psalmist says, Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. And later in verse 12, Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. Or how about Psalm 76, 6? At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse were cast into a dead sleep. You, even you, are to be feared. And who may stand in your presence when once you are angry? And again in Isaiah 9, 19, by the fury of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up and the people are like fuel for the fire. God's wrath in the Old Testament was legendary. He destroyed the whole earth in a global flood in Genesis 6. He destroys Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18 and 19. He punishes the Egyptians with terrible plagues and ultimately destroys Pharaoh and his army by releasing the walls of water he held open for the Israelites. He releases them onto Pharaoh and his army and destroys them. He poured out his wrath on the, the pagan enemies of Israel in our previous study in 1 Samuel. Remember the great thunder that terrified and confused the Philistines in 1 Samuel 7, allowing for that great Israelite victory that day. He even poured out his wrath on his own people, who can forget Saul and his sons, destroyed on the side of Mount Gilboa. And some will say, well, that's just the Old Testament. God in the Old Testament was very angry. But Jesus, he's just a big cuddle bug. He just loves everyone. 
I mean, just look at John 3.16. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not die, but have eternal life. I mean, that's the God I worship, right? Okay. In that same book, in that same chapter, turn to verse 36. John the Baptist is speaking about Jesus, and he said, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Also in the New Testament, just a few out of many verses, Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 16.22, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And again, he tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 5, 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Perfect love demands perfect righteousness. And just who is this wrath to be poured out on? Back to our passage. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What we need to understand here is there is none righteous, no, not one. Every single person born into this world is born spiritually dead. We inherit this from Adam. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ it will, all will be made alive. Therefore, every person is ungodly. That is, we lack reverence for our Creator. We don't praise God for every breath He gives us. And every person is unrighteous, meaning our relationship with God is not there. So how much more will our relationship with our fellow man be off? Men treat men the way they do because they treat God the way they do. And to top that off, not only are men ungodly and unrighteous, Paul says they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress is another one of those Greek verbs that I like to talk about, right? It's a present active verb. Present meaning it's happening now. Active meaning it will continue to happen. They are suppressing. They are pushing down constantly on the truth of God. Meaning that men are not only ungodly and unrighteous, but our nature is not to seek God, but to push him away. So we actually suppress God's truth. Actively. Always. I want to stop there and just think about this for a second. Think about what this means for those of us that have come to faith in Jesus Christ. How did we get here? Was it something we did? Were we special? Did we have some special insight? Are we smarter than everybody else? No. For we are ungodly and unrighteous and actively suppressing the truth to right up until the point. Look at Paul said in Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his, the death of his son, so much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Amen. Our salvation is dependent on God. We are enemies of God until we are clothed in his righteousness. And that is from God. In just one verse, after displaying the glory of gospel, <coughs> Paul gives us even more reason to praise God in that God himself overcame our sin nature, passed through us from Adam to provide his righteousness so that we would not be subject to his wrath. If we can't say amen to that, I don't know what we can say amen to. 
the natural question that follows is, what about those that haven't had much access to the gospel? What about those that, that don't live in America and, and don't have a Bible on every uh, nightstand? Is it fair that God's wrath is poured out on them? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm thankful for my salvation, but what about those that don't have the opportunities to learn about Jesus that the citizens of this great country have been afforded? Well, Paul has an answer to that. Look at verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. Within them, we all have a conscience. Where do, you, where do you think we get moral law from? Why do even the most ardent atheists think it's wrong to kill? Why do the most ardent agnostics think it's wrong to harm children? It's God's moral law. That which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God has given mankind two types of revelation. The first type is, is special revelation. That is the gospel. It's a, it's a revelation leading to salvation. The, the second type of revelation is a general revelation. That is to say that a person looks around the world. They see the, the tiny seed becoming a massive oak. They see the stars flickering in the night. They feel the sun warming their skin on a cold day. The complexity of all creation. And they know there is a God. From the most remote section of the world to the most sophisticated and technologically advanced society, God has left a witness for himself. His invisible attributes and power and divine nature are on display for all to see in his creation. The general revelation does not lead to salvation, meaning I can't look at the, at the beautiful snow that we received on the foothills of Mount Diablo and Mount Diablo itself and say, wow, I believe in a God and be saved. To be saved, I need that special revelation. I need the gospel. But what Paul is saying here is that everyone has enough knowledge in looking at creation to acknowledge God and seek him out. We see this in the Bible in the story of the, the Ethiopian eunuch. Because the Ethiopian eunuch was sincerely seeking God. He had left Jerusalem after the crucifixion and he was riding along, reading a scroll, and he didn't understand it. And God sent him Philip to share that special revelation with him, the gospel. And upon hearing the gospel, the eunuch was saved and then baptized. Another example would be Cornelius, a Roman centurion who also sought the Lord but did not yet know the gospel. And Peter was brought to him. And his entire household was saved. Honest seeking after God will be answered. But we know men constantly suppress that truth. So what happens when that revelation is rejected? Fortunately, we are, unfortunately, we are well into our time. And we've only talked about one of four points. So we need to move a little more quickly through our next point. So we've seen Revelation, but now we see rejection. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they, they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Paul outlines for us four things that happen 
when man does not acknowledge God. They don't honor God, first off. Another way to say this is they don't give glory to God. They exist in a universe of wonderful creations, endless majesty, and yet they refuse to acknowledge God's hand in its creation. They don't thank God is the second thing because man's pride fails to honor and glorify God. He also fails to give him thanks. Although God is the source of every good thing that we possess, the sun, the stars, air, water, food, a spouse, a family, man doesn't acknowledge God's goodness in his rich blessing. The third thing, they become futile in their speculations. To reject God is to reject the greatest reality in the universe. The reality that gives the only true meaning, purpose, and understanding for everything else. Refusing to recognize God and have his truth guide their minds, sinful men are doomed to futile quests for wisdom through our human speculation. To turn your back on God is to exchange truth for a lie. But our minds don't exist in a vacuum. If we force out the truth of God, it will be replaced with a lie, and darkness will replace the truth. This is de-evolution, not evolution. And in it, hearts are darkened. While sinful man believes that rejecting God is really enlightenment, right? Cut, cut ties with that, that religion that keeps you down. Cut ties with that God that did, makes all these rules and become enlightened. The foolish heart that rejects God does the opposite to enlightenment and becomes spiritually dark. And it is in this enlightened state of Simple man moves from rejection to rationalization. Our minds are so powerful. God has created them so powerfully that we can rationalize almost anything. Allison and I like to watch the ID channel sometimes. And, and there's a show on there called Fear Thy Neighbor, right? And it's always about these, these two neighbors. They, they first move in next to each other, and they're always like, oh, you're really nice. Oh, you're really nice. And they get along, and all of a sudden, something sets somebody off, Right? They put a plant in the wrong place. They trim the wrong tree. Something sets them off, and they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until one of them murders the other. And you watch them, and you're just like, just say sorry! What are you doing? Professing to be wise, they became fools. David describes these men well in Psalm 14, starting in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. The mind without God is unable to discern right from wrong, to understand truth from fiction, And since their rebellion is rooted in the area of the divine and the spiritual, they literally can't come to the truth even about themselves. The glare of the depraved mind is intensified when it comes to areas that require them to ponder such issues of, of origin and purpose, life's meaning. We, of course, see this in the theory of evolution. A deeply flawed and actually very racist theory. Darwin's book on evolution is probably known to you as the origin of species. 
Right? That's how it was presented to me when I went to school, The Origin of Species. But did you know the full title was On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life? Darwin wasn't the first to propose biological arguments for racism, but his works fueled the most ugly and deadly racism. Even evolutionist Stephen Jay Gould wrote in his book Onto Ontogeny and phylogeny, biological arguments for racism may have been common before 1859, but they increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of evolution, evolutionary theory. Whereas Christ asserts the value of every human life. It doesn't matter how much or how little melanin I have in my skin. It doesn't matter uh, whether I'm disabled or, or fully abled. It doesn't matter. God values life. Amen. Amen. Darwin, with a depraved and godless mind, falsely asserted that his race was superior than others. And this is still the dominant theory for man's origin today. Crack open any science textbook and that's what you get. Oh, to be sure, the intellectuals have cleaned up the whole racist part, right? They chopped the title up so you didn't see the rest of it. But man has latched on to a godless origin, descended from apes, with no purpose other than consuming, destined to return to stardust. And in that ignorance, sinful man begins to worship the created instead of the creator. Right. As they move past the rejection of God to rationalization of their rejection, verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Now, instead of acknowledging the grace and blessings from a loving God, sinful man moves on to, to worship the creation. And though this has evolved over time, mankind will worship almost anything and everything. True, we don't bow down to idols cut from wood these days, but our idols are just as silly. <coughs> Money, cars, houses, fame. You see, the simple fact is that we all worship something. And with the rejection of God, there is a hole that needs to be filled, so sinful man looks to fill it with anything he can. Some worship at the altar of consumerism, some at the altar of entertainment, but all worship something. And it's in that worshiping that God gives sinful man over. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. When we hear the words gave them over, it sounds like he's just like, well, there you go. But that's not what the Greek means there. The Greek word that is actually used there is a judicial term. And it's the term that would be used when a judge gives someone over to a guard to be taken away and punished. Therefore, God gave them over for punishment in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. The heart, where the lust starts, turns impure. We don't love anymore. We don't have compassion anymore. We're not merciful anymore. So that their bodies would be dishonored among them. It starts with the lust. It goes to the heart. It ruins the body. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, 
Go back to verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Notice that Paul starts with the women. Because women have something that men don't. I know our culture would, would disagree. But women have something that men don't. It's called a maternal instinct. They, 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 they have this instinct that causes them to care for their children far more, uh, far differently. How about that? I love my children. But man, I wouldn't want to come in between Allison and my kids. You ever heard the phrase mama bear? <laughs> Paul turns to women first because it would be the most shocking that the women would be degraded to this point. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The men of Sodom were chasing after the angels. They wanted to, to rape them. The, all the men of Sodom. Not, not some of the men of Sodom. All of the men. And they chased the angels into to Lot's house and they locked the doors, and the angels blinded the men. And you would think, well, that's pretty much it. You're blind, you're going to go home, right? No, they wore themselves out looking for the door because they burned in their desire toward one another. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Uh, depraved meaning you can't even make rational thought. The things you say don't even make sense. Turn on TikTok. You'll find that in two seconds. I watched some video the other day, and this guy was talking about 15 different genders and what this gender meant and this gender meant and that gender meant and this gender meant. And you can cross this gender with that gender, and this gender goes with that gender. And it didn't even make sense. He gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. Being filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. How'd that one get in there? You know, in the Old Testament, disobedience to parents was a capital offense. God has a plan for the family. The father is the head. Then there's the mother and the children, right? The father and the mother, uh, equal in worth, different roles, but equal in worth. And the children are to listen to them so that it will go well with them. When the children are, are disobedient to the parents, the family loses its power. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, Unmerciful. You could spend 30 seconds on YouTube and find any number of examples of this type of behavior. One particularly disturbing video I saw this week was of a six foot six, 270 pound male high school student who chased down his much smaller female teacher, first knocking her out and then continuing to punch and kick her unconscious body until several other people had to pull him away. This teacher's crime? She took away the student's Nintendo Switch for playing with it in class. 
endless fighting, shootings, degrading passions, all unmerciful. I read another story this week, it just broke my heart. It was from Reuters. And it was all about a 14-year-old boy who had decided to become a girl. And it highlighted all of the, the different puberty blockers and, and surgeries and and it gave a little paragraph in there and it said that the parents knew it at four years old that he was really supposed to be a girl. At four years old. And they, they suppressed it and they suppressed it. And then it gives another little paragraph and it says, but the, this child kept watching YouTube videos of influencers and other people that had transitioned and how happy they were now that they had transitioned. Even though the suicide rate among transsexuals is about 40% and it does not change when they receive gender-affirming care. And this child kept watching these videos and watching drag shows and, and, and not once in that paragraph did it say anything about that child being exposed to the word of God. Not once in that paragraph did the parents take that child aside and explain to them that God created them male and female. And God doesn't make mistakes. My heart broke for this little boy. These are all hallmarks of a society that God has given up. And you would think, you, you would think when things start going so terribly, when you turn on the news and every night somebody's shooting somebody or beating somebody up or there's this corruption or there's this scandal, you would think that people would turn back to God and they would cry out for forgiveness. And that's what God really desires. We see in the Old Testament when God disciplined Israel, he didn't do it because he felt like beating the snot out of them. He did it because he wanted them to return to him. But look at what the last step of societal decay is. Verse 32. And although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. As our society descends away from God and as lies are accepted as truths, we see that things that should be called sin are not. They are applauded little boy I told you about got all sorts of praise. The parents got all sorts of praise. I can think of, of no better example, though, than the topic of abortion, especially here in California. In the wake of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, a literal parade of celebrities and politicians have inundated televisions, the Internet, and movies with messages of, of applause for this horrible sin. There is even a website called shoutoutyourabortion.com or shoutyourabortion.com. As I read through the stories that the women wrote on that page, I felt my heart <coughs> breaking for these women and the babies that they lost. So many women deceived by a lie. A lie that turns God knit me together in my mother's womb into it's just a clump of cells. 
So many of them said when it happened, when they went through their abortion, they, they, they were happy about it because it, the, the cells had left. It just felt like a bunch of skin that was gone. So deceived. One story stuck out at me. After the mother described the process she went through during her abortion, she attached some final remarks. She said, for anyone planning on having an abortion, I just want you to know it's okay. This is your life your body, and you ultimately have to make the best decision for yourself. My heart goes out to anyone having to go through this process alone, from sitting in the clinic alone to being at home alone like I was. I hope an abortion does not hinder you, but instead helps you become a better woman for yourself like it did for me. This abortion taught me just how strong I actually am and how much I do want to give all my love and attention to a child and someday raise a child in a better environment. It taught how much I want and needed to change my life for the better so that when that day does come, again, I would be able to give my baby everything he or she needs as well as myself. Take care, ladies. I hope this helps someone. Wishing you all the very best in life. And for this tragedy, she received hearty approval from those doing the same thing. Church. Our world needs the gospel. Amen. For our society has received God's revelation and they have rejected it. They have rationalized away their sin and now give hearty approval for it. It may be too late for the woman in the story that I read to you, but we have an opportunity to save others. Right. Next week, Sophia from Love Life Ministries will be joining us. Maybe some of you remember her. Uh, she's going to do a little presentation as we launch our church's adoption week. We will be adopting uh, an entire week of prayer in response to abortion. And on Saturday the 11th, we'll actually be uh, hosting the prayer walk in front of the Antioch Planned Parenthood. During the week, we'll be praying specifically for the clinic. We'll be uh, praying over that Saturday. And then on Saturday, we will actually go to the clinic and we will pray for those mothers and fathers that have been deceived about abortion. It's not a protest. We won't be holding up signs or trying to talk to anyone going in the clinic. We will simply be praying for God to intervene in that clinic. There will be an email coming out this week with the details for all that can join us on that Saturday or, or those who would be willing to pray throughout the week. Because our society has exchanged the truth for a lie. We've received God's revelation. It was rejected, rationalized, and is given hearty approval every day. But we have the antidote. We have the gospel. Amen. And when someone is saved, they are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, and then they get this thing called the fruit of the Spirit. Right. In direct opposition to all the things that I just told you, that fruit of the Spirit will go out and fight this sort of thing. We have the gospel. We need to share it. It's our mission. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that just like the people described in, in this passage here, Lord, we were unrighteous, we were ungodly, and you saw fit to save us out of that through your power.
through your righteousness, through nothing that we did. Thank God you are amazing. Your grace is so humbling. May we never look down on, on people that are caught up in these traps, but may we reach out to them as one drowning man reaches out to another to save him. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this church. We pray for your blessing on our prayer week with love life. We pray that, that your spirit would move, Lord. We pray for those uh, abortion providers, that they that this the lie would be removed from their eyes, that they would be able to see what they're doing, Lord, in, in your eyes, in the only truthful eyes there are, and that they would walk away. We pray for the mothers and the fathers that are being deceived and have been deceived, Lord. We don't pray in judgment of them. We're not better than them. Lord, we pray for peace from you. We pray for their salvation. We pray that they would come to know the God that can forgive all sin. That they would join us in fighting for what's right. In fighting for what's true. In fighting for what's righteous. And we will give you all the glory for this, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.